A warning for listeners. This episode contains mature themes. I was pro-choice for a chunk of my youth into high school, into college. And a lot of my views were like, well, you know what? I don't like abortion. It was one of those like, I'm personally pro-life. I don't like abortion, but I don't want to tell a woman what not to do. You never know um, what they're going through. And um, I've, I found myself pregnant and a lot of things were going on at the same time. I was trying to figure out school. I was trying to figure out a lot of things um, and a whole different story negotiating with my college about money that I they said I owed, but I didn't. Um, so it was just kind of a lot of stress going on. And I was like, one thing has to go. So it's going to have to be this baby. And um, I remember laying in my dorm room bed the morning that I was supposed to go in. And uh, I remember just praying. I was like, I just need something. I don't even know what to do. I don't feel good about this. I don't feel good about ending my child's life, but I also don't feel good about moving forward without a plan and I don't know what to do. And that was the first time that my son kicked. And I remember thinking, okay, we we can do this. Um, We can make this happen. And the underlying problem with school in the background, everything fell through kind of all at once and I had to leave school. So I found myself not only in an unplanned pregnancy, I was now in a crisis situation where I didn't have housing or food or resources of any kind and no way forward. And then I had to make a different choice out of desperation. And it was about two weeks after my son was born that I officially signed the papers and I placed him for adoption. My name is Marcia Lane McGee. I am an author, a speaker, and a podcaster. And I am vice president of New Wave Feminist, a pro-life feminist organization based out of Texas, but is internationally known. So I did my share of protesting in front of Planned Parenthood. I fought to end abortion. And my limited thinking, I was like, well... If we could end abortion, if we had people that were ready to adopt, right? I could only see it through my very privileged adoption story. I was my kid's confirmation sponsor. Like, I am in it with him and in it with them. And not recognizing that other women have different stories that are trauma-filled. A sweeping, deeply consequential decision from the nation's highest court ruling to overturn Roe v. Wade, rocking the foundations of more than five decades of legal precedent in our country. Tonight, the fallout from the Supreme Court ruling about abortion rights is growing. This after three straight days of protests across America. I think that a lot of people are of the belief that this is a necessary evil. I think that they've kind of given up on actually doing some good because a lot of the reasons that people want abortion we can actually do something to change that. I can speak from the perspective of New Wave Feminist is that we were able to engage a lot of pro-choice people who actually did support us in some ways, right? We're out here just trying to make it where you don't need Planned Parenthood. And I think that there are a lot of pro-choice women that could see and that could be a part of the conversation with us. And when their jobs willing came out, 
like this line was just drawn. And then that was it. We were solidly in the gray and then it became black and white. Abortion is an enormously complicated issue. Every story and every circumstance around it is unique. There are so many factors to consider, from the morality of the act itself to the lives and well-being of the unborn child and of the mother. President Biden says it is a sad day that takes America back 150 years, while Catholic bishops say the Supreme Court decision will save countless children waiting to be born. As states decide for or against restrictions on abortion, you often hear about exceptions that protect the health or life of the mother. Abortion laws and policies are now taking shape across various states. Much of the media's attention and public debate has focused on a relatively small number of medical complications during pregnancy and exceptions to abortion bans. Many are asking, how do you define those exceptions? Catholics have long been at the forefront of the pro-life movement, calling for the overturning of Roe. Now that it's happened, the question for voting Catholics is, what exactly does a just and moral law, one that protects both the unborn child and the mother, look like? From American Media, I'm Sebastian Gomes, and this is Voting Catholic, a podcast about what's at stake in the 2022 midterm elections from the people who know the issues best and bring their faith to the voting booth. In this episode, we're revisiting the topic of abortion in a post-Dobbs America. We'll explore the framing of abortion laws and exceptions, particularly related to mothers, and we'll look at what the two parties are promising voters should they win the election. Finally, we'll return to the pro-life movement and ask Marcia, a voting Catholic active in that movement, where it goes from here. Stay with us. Welcome back. Now that Roe has been overturned, many Catholics active in the pro-life movement are pivoting to individual states, where they'll advocate for laws that would not allow abortion. But whether Catholics live in a state where the legal availability of abortion is being preserved or restricted, laws can't always account for the medical and moral complexities that may arise during a pregnancy. I'm Jackie Osterblad. I just graduated from Yale Law School this spring, and I wrote a column for America Magazine called We Need to Talk About Life of the Mother Exceptions in Abortion Law. The key question that you brought up in the article that you wrote for America was related to uh, questions around the life of the mother in these situations of pregnancy. We know what the church's stance toward abortion is, that it's kind of unequivocally against the taking of any innocent life from the moment of conception and natural death. But what about the church's position on abortion when it comes to those questions of the life of the mother and the life of the mother is at stake? Yeah, so the church's position on life of the mother is that there are two people involved in this situation and they both have dignity and a right to life. Um, and that that ends don't justify means is a sort of, is a good Catholic moral starting point. And we say that you can't kill an innocent person to save another innocent person 
And so it means that the only answer that we say is sort of morally acceptable in a situation where a pregnancy is threatening uh, the life of the person who is pregnant is um, if there is something we can do that is indirect, that doesn't kill the child on purpose. And we call that the doctrine of double effect, that isn't killing a child for the purpose of saving the mother, but is instead treating some condition that the mother has that is going to unfortunately end the pregnancy. And this principle of double effect is ingrained in the Catholic healthcare system. We know that Catholic hospitals do not allow for elective abortions, um, but exceptions are made when the health or life of a pregnant woman is threatened and an unintentional consequence of treatment is the death of the unborn child. So from a Catholic perspective, I'm, I'm curious, what are some considerations when crafting a law that would protect the health of the mother, but also the unborn child? Does this law threaten doctors who have done nothing wrong? Right? Do we make sure that it's focused? Does this law prevent um, women from getting access to medications that they need for purposes other than abortion? Does this law allow for an emergency situation to be treated as an emergency? Or does it uh, require so much time to comply with that someone's medical situation can become more tenuous? Does this law prioritize medical judgment or does it put the ultimate decision with juries? Jackie, ectopic pregnancies are often at the forefront of the different conversations that are being raised about life of the mother questions in the current climate. Um, can you just explain what those are and why those are so serious to consider? Yeah, I think ectopic pregnancies are an interesting example because it is true that most state laws have a carve out for ectopic pregnancies. They are when a pregnancy implants somewhere outside of the uterus, most commonly inside of a fallopian tube, but it can be elsewhere. Um, and a pregnancy that implants outside of a uterus just cannot cannot develop, cannot grow, um, will only eventually explode essentially and cause a woman whatever organ it has implanted into hemorrhage. But I think the reason that they're so interesting, even though most state laws try to account for them, um, is that they are a very fast-moving emergency. You have to treat them immediately. Once the hemorrhage begins, Like women only have a matter of hours before they could die. And they're not always easy to confirm on a scan. And so it can be difficult for a doctor to get the evidence together if that's the world in which we're operating, to prove that this was an ectopic pregnancy that was terminated in the amount of time needed before it becomes a, a real serious medical threat and emergency. But I think there's always going to be a line at which, I don't want to say that there are two sides, but a line at which the two sides start to like really disagree. And I, I think one of those places is like incomplete miscarriages. Um, situations where there is still a detectable fetal heartbeat, um, but the pregnancy has definitely become unviable. And so it's a matter of either waiting for the heartbeat to end and then doing a miscarriage treatment or doing the miscarriage treatment now because that can reduce the risk of complications. But also it can last for for weeks. So like on the one hand, it can be like immediately life-threatening, but on the other hand, it can just mean that that you're sent home in pain bleeding a little bit, unable to work or parent for weeks while you wait for an abortion. 
And so these are situations where just, I feel like people's moral instincts are just very different. The church's moral instinct is just, but you have a baby that is having a painful death and we have to care for it. And, and a lot of other people's moral instinct is like, this woman needs help right now and making her wait is cruel. One of the questions that, that people often raise is uh, that of frequency, right? When you're talking about life of the mother challenges, questions, these sometimes crazy things that can happen. Uh, how frequent is it? Um, and oftentimes that's juxtaposed to, you know, the number of elective abortions that have been chosen, uh, or, you know, since Roe was established in 1973, which I think is something like 60 million. Um, do we know how frequently these medical complications happen? And does that matter from a Catholic perspective? I don't think it should matter for Catholics. Um, I think the kind of crude tallying up of bodies on one side versus the other is exactly the kind of thing that Catholic ethics is supposed to avoid. I think a lot of less anti-abortion Catholics have long suggested that there are other things we could be doing in policy to reduce the number of abortions, that we should be focusing instead on on sexual education, we should be focusing instead on social safety net, we should be focusing instead on all these other things, because that would reduce the number of abortions. And I think the pro-life Catholic side has said quite eloquently that that's not enough, that the goal is not just to reduce the numbers, but to actually have a, a culture of life and an ethic of life and protection of everyone. You can't just say that one dead woman is worth a thousand dead fetuses, like that we have to think about laws in a culture that respects pregnant women and their lives and their dignities and thinks about how to take care of their health. I know after the decision, I, I saw a mix of Catholic reactions. Um, there were people in the pro-life movement, obviously, who were overjoyed, which is understandable. Um, some recognized that this was only, you know, one very key step in building this broader culture of life that Catholics often talk about. And at the same time, I saw other Catholics, especially women, who were expressing a lot of fear. What do you think accounts for those immediate feelings of fear that we saw? I think a lot of people felt fear for the simple fact that even if you were someone who thought you would never want an abortion, this decision meant that there was someone else who was making that decision alongside you or for you. And at the end of the day, what the decision means is that the state can help make decisions around your medical care in order to protect your child. And even if you are a Catholic woman who is trying to make those decisions in line with those ethics anyway, it still means that there's like some loss of control and some loss of power there. Jackie, thanks very much for speaking with me today. Thanks, Sebastian. Apart from laws and exceptions for mothers with complicated pregnancies, Catholic voters will be looking at party platforms and the voting records and campaign promises of politicians running in their state and for Congress. To better understand the political debate around abortion ahead of the midterms, I spoke with Richard Dorflinger, an ethicist who worked for many years in the pro-life office of the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. But before we got into politics, I asked Rich what he thinks the Catholic Church's message should be to women who are afraid, now that Roe has been overturned. I think we should say where we are coming from is from God's love for each and every 
human being without exception. And that means you, as well as the child you may have in your womb. If you start making exceptions for saying, these are the people that God doesn't care about, that is a very dangerous place to go to. You know, a long time ago, people can deny this because of its possible consequences, but the biological issue was settled a long time ago. This is a, a living member of the human species. It's also, it's your son or daughter. It is a member of your family already, though not yet delivered. And that has to count for something in a church that is always saying everyone is equal in dignity, but especially we need to be standing up for the poor and the vulnerable and the voiceless. With the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe in June, there are obviously new conversations among Catholics about the abortion issue, right? Like, what does this mean for how Catholics consider, debate, and advocate for life now. So with that in mind, what is the big question for the Catholic pro-life movement and for activism now? Well, I agree very much with my friend Charles Camosi, who has written that we are now in pro-life 3.0. Before Roe v. Wade, we had constant political debate about this in legislatures. Once Roe was passed, it knocked down the laws in all of the 50 states, and it was all about reversing Roe v. Wade. Post Roe v. Wade, we are dealing with almost 50 years of people, as the Supreme Court once said, shaping their lives around the availability of abortion in case contraception could fail. And I think to a lot of people, men and women, the decision of the court gave them a kind of whiplash. I think what especially Catholic pro-lifers need to do is to, first of all, show that we do care about women and women's lives. And there are a lot of positive proposals for helping women not to think that abortion is their only choice when they have an unexpected pregnancy. We need to show that we care about their needs and their interests. And we also need to make proposals to protect the unborn child. And I'm very much a proponent in that regard of incremental legislation, of dealing with taking into account public sentiment and of taking I don't intend this as a pun, but to take baby steps toward a legal system that respects the unborn child as well as the child's mother. So there's a lot here to consider, but I do want to mention this one thing that I'm hearing you say about the incremental nature of potential laws that restrict abortion. Oftentimes in the popular imagination, when people think about Catholics and their involvement in the pro-life movement or how they feel or think or what they believe about abortion, it's like a categorical issue. And Catholics are categorically against abortion, right? We think it's the taking of an innocent life, and that is always morally evil. But what you're talking about from a legislative perspective is, I don't think, something that a lot of people pay attention to. Is it correct to say that Catholics are able to defend this kind of incrementalist approach? It's not just an all-or-nothing type of thing? Well, that's something that uh, the U.S. bishops in their pastoral plan for pro-life activities in 1975 said, we want laws that protect the life of the unborn to the maximum degree possible. But both of those words are important, maximum possible, and politics is the art of the possible. And as a moral issue, it got settled by Pope St. John Paul II in 1995 with his encyclical on the gospel of life. And he said it is perfectly appropriate and valid to pass laws that don't go all the way toward restoring full protection for life if it makes an improvement and can build toward a society that may accept something more. 
Otherwise, as you say, it's all or nothing. And that means in a lot of cases, it'll be nothing. We're in the context of the midterm elections when specific policies and legislation are being considered. So I want to look at the two parties and what they're promising to voters in relation to this issue of abortion. And maybe let's start with President Biden, who, though he's not officially on the ballot himself, he is the leader of the party that's in power. And he's been campaigning on codifying abortion access into law. We've heard him very explicitly name that. Should Democrats increase their majority in Congress, of course, I should say that as well. Take us through this policy idea. What are the president and the Democrats looking to accomplish? Well, and, and the president in his latest speeches have made this very much a priority issue, you know, and some cynical people have said, well, he's he's avoiding inflation by talking about abortion. The bill in question is the Women's Health Protection Act. It has been the flagship legislation of the major national pro-abortion groups for years now. And it is not codifying Roe. You know, Roe v. Wade was a right of privacy decision. It said, let's let the woman alone in making this decision for herself. It was a negative right. It was a right to be free of active government interference. What the Women's Health Protection Act does is say, this is a public entitlement. This is routine, essential health care. Anything that may interfere with ready and immediate access to abortion can be nullified by a federal lawsuit or by the attorney general. But really does mean abortions right up to the moment of birth, if that's what the, a doctor and a woman can agree on. It means knocking down hundreds of very modest state laws that Roe v. Wade has allowed to take effect, like parental rights, like bans on public funding, like even safety regulations for women. So I think it's the most sweeping abortion legislation I've ever seen, and I've been at it for 40 years. It is not Roe v. Wade. It makes Roe v. Wade almost look moderate. Hmm. Let me ask you about the Republicans now. My sense is that the Democrats have been much more vocal than Republicans on this issue since the Supreme Court's decision. But there has been a movement in the party to at least floating the idea of potentially passing a national ban on abortion after 15 weeks. But beyond that, maybe take us through the Republican approach to this issue in this moment in the run-up to the election. Well, I think the Republican approach in many cases is duck and hide. You know, they had these trigger laws which were in place and would trigger into effect if Roe v. Wade were overturned. And they were not absolute bans on abortion, but some of them had only an exception for the life of the mother. And some of them began to realize that that was a lot to do and maybe too fast. And so they didn't understand the level of fear and panic that would emerge from going from zero to 100 miles an hour in one day. So I think they've now been somewhat chastened on that. And I think on balance, that might be a good thing because it'll lead them to think about things that are more sustainable because they're more moderate, like a 15 or 20 week ban with exceptions. After the Dobbs ruling that overturned Roe in June, we heard many Catholic commentators and activists say that the Catholic Church, under the leadership of the bishops, really needs to explicitly separate itself from extremism in the pro-life movement. And I'd like to try to unpack that for people. Like, what does that mean? So what is the extremism in the pro-life movement that unsettles so many Catholics in the United States? Well, one thing that unsettled people, and the bishops did actually respond to it very forcefully, was the idea that you could prosecute the woman 
who undergoes an abortion. There was a legislator in Louisiana who tried to uh, promote that idea and got a very forceful response from 70 leaders of pro-life organizations, including the U.S. Bishop's Pro-Life Committee Chair. Some of the other laws have been accused of actually placing legal barriers to potentially life-saving treatment for ectopic pregnancy and for miscarriage care. I mentioned the Charlotte Lozier Institute. They have a lot of scholars, medical, legal, and so on. And they did a review of every one of the laws that have passed so far and said all of them are clear in not going after those things. I did want to go a little bit deeper into the question of the preciseness of some of these laws. Isn't it true that there is a question about how precise the language of the law is and how to interpret the law? And there could be instances where doctors or mothers are a little bit unclear in a moment when some kind of complicated situation comes about and a difficult decision has to be made and there might be some hesitation and that type of thing. I mean, it might be rare, but I have heard that this is a real concern for a lot of people. So I guess the question is, how precise do the laws need to be? And should Catholics who are interested in advocating for life and pro-life legislation be tuned into that? Well, I think it's very important. And I think that for the most part, having looked at some of these laws, I think in terms of the letter of the law, they've done it well. But you need a lot more education, public education, and education of medical people as well as to what they do and what they don't do. The Texas law, for example, you know, it says we're talking about an intrauterine pregnancy. Well, that takes an ectopic pregnancy off the board already. And certainly any bill the bishops have ever supported says this has nothing to do with charges against the woman, for example. But I don't think people are necessarily listening to nuanced and moderating messages in our current political climate. So it's hard to break through the smoke that happens in an election year where there's a lot of exaggeration going on. Okay, Rich, in light of everything that we've talked about today, I want to ask you a, a really practical question. And that is, what advice would you offer to Catholics who are preparing to vote in November for whom this issue of abortion is really important, is a key issue? Well, I think particularly at the national level, the president has said, if you give me more Democrats than the Senate, I'm going to pass this bill that, as I've said, is extremely sweeping and does not conform to the opinion of almost anybody if they knew what it does. And so I, I am particularly fearful of that. My own view on all this, and I, I had this view before I ever became uh, a very serious Catholic, was, look, there are all these human rights at stake, but none of them matter if somebody can kill you before you can exercise it. So that's why life is the first issue. It's not the ultimate, it's not every human right, but it's the one without which the other rights become irrelevant. And unless we apply that to everyone, including the child in the womb, the elderly person, the immigrant, the homeless person, unless we make no exceptions about that principle at least, we are going down a very dangerous path. Richard, thank you very much for speaking with me today. Thank you. So the pro-life movement as it is and as we've known it for the last 49 years has been about changing this law, right? About changing the Supreme Court ruling. And they've done it. And I think 
now that we've gotten this law changed, how do we support the women whom it affects? Like we have the Catholic social teachings. Like the very first one is the dignity and life of the human person is paramount. And every other social teaching that follows supports that claim, right? Care for creation, rights and responsibilities, solidarity, dignity of work. And they support the idea and the understanding that Jesus didn't come, that we simply have life, but he came that we have it abundantly. I actually believe that we should stay out of the political part of the pro-life movement. I think it's been used as a carrot long enough to get you to vote Democrat or Republican or what have you. I think if we're actually going to do good as a church coming up on the midterm elections, I think that we should look into those who are making laws or who have, you know, voted on laws that support women and their children and their abundant life. And we can see that. We can plainly see people's voting records and what they have. I think that we should take the politics of being pro-life or pro-choice out of it. Thank you all for listening to this second season of Voting Catholic for the 2022 midterm elections. For complete coverage of the midterms from America, including articles written by guests featured in the podcast, visit americamagazine.org or click the link in the show notes. America Media is committed to producing content that challenges you to think in new ways and to draw closer to the realities of people, especially those on the margins. If you enjoyed listening to Voting Catholic, please support us and access all of our content by becoming a digital subscriber. If you already are, please encourage a friend or family member to subscribe as well. You can learn more at americamagazine.org slash subscribe. Voting Catholic is a production of America Media, a Jesuit ministry. This episode was written and produced by me and Maggie Van Dorn. Sound design and mixing by Ashley Spillane and Frank Tucson, with production assistance from Cristobal Spielman, Christopher Parker, and Jillian Rice. The art is by Sean Tripoli and Allison Hamilton. Parts of it were recorded in the William J. Loeschert Studio at America Media's headquarters in New York City. I'm your host and executive producer, Sebastian Gomes. Thank you for listening.